You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 431, The Changing Face of Evil. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we read every sacred tome and text of Star Trek, from the series to the movies, and see if they would stand the test of time, and try to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, the changing face of evil. The one where evil changes faces, from bad to worse, and from evil to good. I'll be back with trivia in a moment, right after Norman tells you how to engage with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, after pouring through tomes and tomes and tomes and hopefully not burning any of the sacred texts, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. Hey, we're going to keep it short and sweet for this week's episode, The Changing Face of Evil. It was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. And we mentioned before the rather interesting writing assignments that had led us into this first half of the final stretch of 10 episodes, well, nine episodes, 10 hours. The first four were being written simultaneously by different writers or teams of writers. This then served as a way to wrap up some major points and propel us into the next phase. So keep all of that in mind as we're talking about the plot points in this episode. It was directed by Mike Vijar. And just uh, one more episode from Mike before he's done with DS9. The last one that we covered of his was Bada Bing. So one more and then he is off to Voyager. In the guest stars, well, all the familiar faces you would expect are here. We mentioned two episodes ago that James Otis as Solbar was so well-liked by the production that his character got written in twice more. I hope I'm not giving away too much by saying that this is his final appearance on DS9. We also have a new character, Gull Rasat, played here by John Vickery. He's no stranger to Star Trek. John was in the TNG episode Night Terrors way back when, and here he starts a three-episode appearance as the Cardassian Rosat. Like a lot of DS9 actors, John has an extensive theatrical background, everything from Shakespeare to contemporary works, and was nominated for a Jeff Award in Chicago for his role in I Hate Hamlet. In Los Angeles, he got a Dramalogue Award for his appearance in Richard II. His sci-fi credits also carry over to Babylon 5, where he appeared in six episodes, and he'll be back with us again after DS9 for an appearance on Enterprise. 
I've been waiting since last week to see what kind of insurance claim Esri has to file on the runabout she borrowed. Let's go. Prologue. After being released from imprisonment on Cardassia by Damar, Worf and Ezri safely return to Deep Space Nine and are warmly welcomed by Chief O'Brien and Dr. Bashir. However, their reunion is cut short by the arrival of Captain Sisko, who needs to hear first-hand intelligent reports from Worf and Dax about this new Dominion-Breen alliance. They don't have much to report on that front, but do inform Sisko about Damar's sudden turn against the Dominion and how both of them owe Damar their lives. Suddenly, Colonel Kira contacts Sisko over comms and informs him that Starfleet Command has just reported that the Breen have attacked Earth. Act 1. In Captain Sisko's office, staring at an image of a charred Starfleet headquarters and a cleaved Golden Gate Bridge, General Martok and Captain Sisko are in sheer awe of such a bold and decisive attack by the Breen. Martok bolsters Sisko's morale by reminding him that no enemy is without weakness. Sisko returns to his now smoky quarters, only to find Cassidy deep in what appears to be cooking, much to the plight of Sisko's prized three-month-grown peppers. She wanted to do something nice for him to lift his spirits. He would be more at ease if Cassidy cut back on cargo runs as the war is turning for worse. She declines, but understands Ben's concerns. On Cardassia, in the Dominion briefing room, Wayin celebrates the successful attack against the Federation with his Breen allies. After leaving to report to the founder, Damar warns the Breen that at one time, the Cardassians' military praises were sung as well, until the war became prolonged and were replaced by the Breen. Just a word of friendly advice. Later in Damar's chambers, he covertly meets with another officer, Gul Rasat, who provides Damar with the information he desperately needed, a list of loyal Cardassian officers who are sympathetic to his plans for liberating Cardassia from the Dominion, starting with a military victory and show of force on Rondak III. Meanwhile on Bajor, Kai Wen asks Solbor to cancel all of her upcoming meetings, even with the Vedic Assembly, as she tries to sort out her relationship with the Prophets, with the Pa Wraiths, and most importantly, with Anjol Tanan, who has been by her side during her crisis of faith. Kai Wen is at a crossroads and cannot find the path forward. However, Dukat, as Anjol, advises her that the only way forward is to free the Pa Wraiths from the fire caves by consulting the forbidden texts in the Book of the Kostamojin. Act 2. Back on Deep Space Nine, Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien are strategizing atop a scale model of the Alamo, plotting their next rewrite of history to achieve a victory against General Santa Anna. Looking down on them from the balcony seats, Worf can't help but scoff at Bashir's childishness playing with toys, while Ezri looks on and wonders if she should tell Julian how she feels about him. On Cardassia, Wayun catches a very awake and alert Damar at his post earlier than usual and without his hands clutched around a canar bottle. Wayun believes that Damar's attitude has changed, back to believing in the founders and now the Breen, as their united front has swung the momentum of the war in the Dominion's favor. In Kaiwin's quarters, Solbor enters with the ancient text of the 700-year-old book of the Kostamojin in his hands. Before handing it over to Kaiwin, Solbor tries to reason with the Kai and begs for her not to open the book, as he finally warns her, he who studies evil is studied by evil. 
Angel encourages her to fulfill her destiny, and in doing so, upon opening the book, the pages are ancient, fragile, and completely empty. Unless, as Kaiwin suggests, the words are simply hidden from them and must be revealed. Act 3. Cisco pays Odo a visit to discuss the new station's security protocols, and in the midst of their conversation, Cassidy barges in with a very specific bone to pick with the captain. She's been recently informed that she's been given a month's paid leave from the Bajoran Shipping Authority, to which she tells Cisco her job is as important to her as his is to him. As Odo and Quark watch from a safe distance outside, Quark jabs his comrade with the age-old, Ah, marriage. Don't let this happen to you and Kira. A piece of friendly advice. On Bajor, as Kaiwen buries herself in ancient dark texts and manuscripts, Solbor continues to bring in stack after stack of them, worrying about Kaiwen's reasons for requesting them. She responds simply, for the good of Bajor, as she dismisses both Solbor and Angel from her chambers. Back in Captain Sisko's quarters, a gorgeous bouquet of flowers and the promise of an even more beautiful necklace convinces Cassidy that Benjamin is indeed sorry for overstepping his boundaries with her profession. However, Admiral Ross appears shortly after with grim news. The Breen have broken through the Federation lines at Chintaka. Act 4. The Defiance command team is preparing the ship for departure and to join the rest of the forward assault fleet in the Chintaka system. Nog is a bit tentative and pessimistic, but is soon distracted by O'Brien's and Julian's incessant conversation about Julian losing the chief scale model of Colonel Travis. Whether or not O'Brien and Bashir are playing with toys or figures or models, all of that is put aside once Captain Sisko arrives on the bridge, as he has Kira set course for the assault fleet. On Bajor, Solbor tries to collect as many of the dark texts he can so they can be returned to the archive. Dukat confronts Solbor and beats him down, retrieves the books, and wakes Kai Wen, only to win her over in her weary and weakened state. In Damar's quarters, he and Gul Rasat are finalizing their plans for Rondak III, which will cause the deaths of many fine soldiers, to which Damar responds, at least they will be dying for Cardassia, and not the Dominion. And as they make their way to the Chintaka warfront, Wayun admits he fears for the Founder's safety, being so close to the front lines, but she insists on seeing this battle firsthand. Act 5. Shortly after joining the attack fleet in Chintaka, the Defiant engages Breen attack cruisers single-handedly, and just when the Defiant is about to destroy their second cruiser, before it explodes, it fires an energy pulse, which catastrophically cripples every system on the Defiant. Helpless and powerless, the Defiant becomes target practice for the surrounding Jem'Hadar fighters. Unable to save her, Captain Sisko takes one last look across his bridge, orders all hands to abandon ship, and get to the life pods. The Defiance hull protects the last few pods from incoming enemy fire, and finally succumbs to her wounds and explodes. Wayun gloats at Sisko's loss, but the female founder orders him to let the survivors return to the Federation to tell the tale of how the Defiant was destroyed by the power of the Dominion and the Breen Alliance. Back in Kai Wen's chamber, Solbor barges in unannounced and tells Kai Wen everything. Solbor, being suspicious of Anjul from the start, checked his background and discovered that the real Tanan died nine years ago, and to turn the Kai's world truly upside down, Solbor DNA checked Angel and discovered not only is he Cardassian, but Goldacott himself. Dukat, not denying any of Solbor's accusations, 
tries to convince Kai Wen that their destinies are forever linked by the will of the Pa Wraiths. Solbor tries to escape with the truth that Kai Wen has betrayed her people, but is cut down by her knife in the back. And, as she tries to compose herself and realize what just happened, several drops of blood fell on the pages of the Book of the Coast of Mojin, causing the pages to burst into flame as the invisible ancient texts revealed themselves to her. Dukat convinces Adami that this is the sign she's been waiting for and not to worry. He'll dispose of Solbor's body. Back on Deep Space Nine, Admiral Ross and Captain Sisko take a brief moment amidst the chaos to remember the ship that was the Defiant. But more to their immediate concern is how to counter the Breen energy weapon. Ross and Sisko are soon interrupted by Colonel Kira, who turns their attention to the ops view screen. It's Damar, who has in very clear and definitive terms has broken away from the Dominion, who he no longer considers an ally, but a usurper who has subjugated the entire Cardassian people without firing a single shot. Damar confesses that he organized the strike on the Dominion cloning facility on Rondak 3 as the opening salvo for his rebellion, and is calling for all Cardassians to rise up as a people and liberate their homeland. After confirming Damar's account of Rondak 3, Sisko decides to help him, as he now may be the key to saving the Alpha Quadrant. The End Nicely done there as we go through our plot-heavy episodes, Norman. Um, One thing that I I just, you know, I'm glad they addressed it right up front, is that as soon as Ezri and Worf uh, get off the the runabout and they're back home finally on DS9, like, can we actually trust what Damar is saying? Because if you go by anybody on DS9's experience with any Cardassian, the answer is an automatic no. Like they are really good at subterfuge. They are really good at misdirection. I would immediately think like, okay, they sent them home. Are they even the people that I think they are? Yeah. Because, you right. know? But at least in this case, uh, genuine. Yeah. It was a nice reunion. And mm-hmm. it was nice for Ezri to see the chief and hug the chief. We know they have that relationship uh, from sure. you know, when they were on the planet, sure. her home planet together. But the friend zone hanging hug that she didn't <laughs> for sure. I'm like, wow, I don't like I don't know if that was specifically directed in that way or they were just kind of like lost in the conversation. But I was like, wow, you just got yeah. like you just got yeah. friend zones, dude, like big time. Look, at least it wasn't the equally terrible. Like when Ezri first shows up on DS9 and passes by Worf, like we need to talk. Which was such a blow off, mm, which was, you know, yeah. also terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and kind of there's the whole kind of let's skip over the whole you stole the runabout thing, you against, you know, went against orders thing, you know, you left the station without, uh, you know, approval thing. Oh, and, uh, you know, we'll just, you know, chalk it up to lost runabout, put that in the, uh, the balance sheet for Deep Space Nine because money reasons, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Don't worry. It, yeah. Something that would have gotten anybody else court-martialed. Yeah. yeah just yeah, we'll talk about it later. All right. Let's talk about that attack on Earth. I mm-hmm. mean, I have to say, I was not really expecting that. Um, very sad to see the Golden Gate Bridge uh, cut in half. A very bold choice yeah. and interesting way to depict it. Um, also, you know, I keep thinking about the distance. Like DS9 is supposed to be really, really, really far away. Like, it shouldn't just be easy to pop over them. The Breen have only been a part of this battle for a short time. And they must have some incredibly fast warp engines so they can just hop over to Earth, land an attack, and get back. So, And mentioning Earth, it kind of, 
that's like a direct pipeline to people's emotions when they're watching mm-hmm. TV shows. Like, oh, it's okay. Well, it's not okay, but it's you know, it's um, we're, we're sympathetic to other planets that get attacked. But when it's Earth, they're like, Mm-mm. no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. Now we're like, yes, everyone, you know, get all the phasers and all the torpedoes and all the ships yeah. and everything, and go get the brain because they just they just effed with our I own know. homeland. And a place that we know and love. I mean, uh, Starfleet headquarters is is beautiful, and it is a part of the fabric of Star Trek. And Bartok gets it. He's like, even my people never attempted that. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah, Klingons love, I guess, uh, they love appreciating stronger enemies. It just makes them, it makes the Klingons, like, greater when they can defeat an almost impossible enemy. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's like, I can't exactly. wait to kick their butts because they're pretty darn good. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, I love how they position Damar with Gore. He's just kind of like, hey, you guys are good now. We were good earlier. So oh. if you're not good later, then <laughs> they're going to be talking to someone else. You kind of had it coming. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I love the Breen voices. And and I love especially that we don't know what they're saying. Like that that is a clever thing to that can sometimes be very ham-fisted in sci-fi when you have one character speaking an alien language and you just have the other person reacting in English, you know, reacting in a language that you understand. And sometimes it can be really forced and really obvious. But in this, you got all the information you needed to get. But I do love that with Damar just dropping that little hint of doubt yep. like eh, i wouldn't turn my back on way even if i were you uh but you're you're probably fine yeah. i mean you know look we we had it rough we were great then we had it rough but you know <laughs> yeah i'm just i'm just saying you know i'm just you know, saying just, I'm, I'm not saying, saying but i'm just I'm saying, just saying. Yeah. yeah uh all that smoke in cisco's in quarters you know isn't there like a 24th century advanced smoke a evacuation hood in a room like that or something one would hope unless the Cardassians just didn't care about that when they built uh Tarek Nor um but yeah maybe not but man Cisco for all the things that are on Cisco's mind he is definitely very concerned about his peppers it's the small yeah, things well, though right it, yeah things. okay yeah that, that's fair that's yeah. fair and at least he he kind of chills out about it at a moment but oof, he is very upset speaking of the small things like yeah, yes. hobbits and rings of power. So yes. when when the fire engulfed the pages, you know, on the Book of the Power Wraiths, it was right. so Lord of the Ringsy, like, you know, a language that only fire can reveal or fire can tell, right? Yeah. I guess when pages yeah. burst in the flames and go from invisible to like completely full of like ancient scribblings, yeah, it's kind of unnerving. You're like, mm, okay, we're doing some supernatural stuff here. Uh, well, and that is the thing. It's like this very weird fine line that they keep flirting with on DS9, where it, it's Star Trek. These are things that exist in this world. They're, you know, uh, prophets are wormhole aliens. They exist. They live there. We can go say hi to them. But then we have magic things like books where words suddenly appear if you have the right incantation or the right, you know, it's a little yeah, it's a little strange. Like it's very dramatic mm-hmm. because you think, okay, well, parades are or were beings that existed. They had to like think through this thing, right, <laughs> to make it actually work. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we watch enough science fiction, you know, you you, you watch all different types of fandoms, and um, you know, in one particular one, in Stargate, 
all aliens are or all magic is is technology that a certain mm-hmm. you know race or species just doesn't understand it's yep. still technology we just think of it as being magic because and there's no other events technology is indistinguishable from magic exactly exactly yep yep my favorite scene in this entire episode has nothing to do with spaceships or battles it, it barely has to do with an actual scene of dialogue it's the mm-hmm. moment when Damar stopped Golrasat from drinking Kanar in their conversation. That was so informative of how much Damar has chosen to change. Yeah. It was, I thought it was perfectly executed, that scene. Well, and while we're talking about Damar changing, and I didn't point it out in the last episode, but the lighting and makeup on Damar, not heavy-handed, but it's just enough that it is done to great effect where you just go, he is a new man. Mm-hmm. And and it's great. I, I, I It might be a combination of things, camera angles as well, definitely the way that Casey is playing him, but he looks physically different just because of the, the change in tone and lighting tones around him. Uh, it's pretty remarkable to see that transformation. I mean, you can... You can bookend these scenes where where we see Damar at the end of this episode uh, on the screen in Ops. His speech is so stirring and so confident. It's completely opposite of when we saw him for the first time when he became the goal of Cardassia under the Dominion, where he was kind of trying to fill Dukat's shoes. And he didn't really know mm-hmm. what he was doing. He knew that he was, you know, a uh, a lame duck gull, if you will. You know, yeah. he just, right. he didn't know right. how to be the part. He just knew that, hey, I'm going to get power, riches, women, Kanar. What's not to like? But this guy, though, this guy at the end, that's mm-hmm. a completely different man. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> and when he's giving out that speech, there are two Cardassians in the control room hanging out with, like, the Breen and Wayun. And then Damar's on the screen saying all this stuff. If I were those two guys, I'd love to see this as a lower deck scene. I, like, yes. right? <laughs> They look yes. at each other like, um, are we going to die here? I think we're going to die uh, yeah. here. We're probably we're I, probably going to die here. Absolutely wondered about those guys. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that'll bring me back to a point a little bit later on in the show. But yeah, uh, definitely worried about their safety. Gosh, uh, just some other things to point out here. I, I love, uh, speaking of physicality, Ducat slash Angel swagger because he, he, particularly these scenes when he's not around Kai Wen and now that they're more familiar with each other wow his whole body language has just changed and that confrontation uh, is great uh, with Solbor is so good because then you see the the Ducat underneath coming out mm-hmm. and he's fantastic I do want to mention toys here no no okay the battlefield model isn't just a toy wharf come on man I mean can't you of all people see the value of exploring military strategy during a war <laughs> you know but I, and I do love that Ezri calls him out like you want to go help him yeah he's perfectly <laughs> you know? good with like you know armchair quarterbacking from on high yeah. But no, I can't play with toys. No, of yeah. course not. Of course not. Uh, there's a, a moment with Wayun that I love um, where, uh, I mean, I love Wayun anyway, but I especially love Wayun talking himself into the answer that he wants to hear about how Damar has changed. It's such a good way. Because he talks to, he starts to, talk himself through it mm-hmm. it's like oh you thought you backed the wrong side and then damar just says oh, oh you, you know me so well 
It was brilliant. That that was such a brilliant slice of writing where they are two characters with completely different motivations running in opposite directions, yet having a conversation there in the same room. It is perfect. It's so good. Um, Got to say, very glad to see Admiral Ross coming in with the news about the Chintaka system. I mean, it, it, it's good that, uh, you know, his Section 31 buddies are on top of this and can feed him information. What? What? That's where he gets all his info, right? Okay, so <laughs> they okay, – um, did, did, did I hit a sore spot? You just broke that... my brain. <laughs> okay. Because how do they not know anything about the brain? What is the point of having, yeah. like, this clandestine – like supremely funded, all the toys, all the gadgets, all the stuff, fingers in every uh-huh. pie, and you don't know if the brain's coming to attack your planet? Yeah. Yeah. All right. it, you know, look, Ross, go send Sloan off to figure out the brain. That's where he should be anyway. And if he comes back dead, so what? How did the brain <laughs> get know? past like all these different defenses, the early warning systems, into this into soul space without Section 31 knowing that they're coming? I mean, thank you. He had one yes. job, Section 31, and yeah. he blew it. You blew You're it. Not, not very good at it. <laughs> all right. I, I have to talk about this scene, and I, I don't want to be hypercritical here but every time i watched it it kind of rubbed me the wrong way it's that whole prep scene on the bridge of the defiant when they're getting ready to go off into battle i I loved it but then i also hated it and i get what they're doing by overlapping the dialogue with now i'm going to say a line that has to do with my job prepping the defiant now i'm going to say a line that has to do with my personal relationship or this other conversation i'm having as a person with my coworker. i i get it i get what they were trying to do but maybe it's just me it felt like it played too long or it felt like the writers were just being clever rather than serving the moment Am I alone here or the way I took it was I think that it sounded better in their heads and mm-hmm. and and anticipating the actors to be able to to get the timing right because I think the timing on that on that particular scene was just a little off like they're yeah. they're teching the tech which is a completely uh a completely like special mode of acting and yeah. and uh, the gravitas of that because they're heading out into war. Then all of a sudden they shift to. By the way, did you ever see you did you just see where I misplaced my figure? You know because and the face yeah. and, and the plasma coils have been like. Oh, and by the way, did you accidentally step on any of my toys? You know, it's just it was yeah. in it was imbalanced. I think it was yeah. And and I think you're right. Maybe it was one of those things that just sounded better as an idea because the way it actually is parked there in the episode. I, I kind of I got it like in the first few seconds they were doing it, but then it just kept going on and it didn't work for me. Yeah. But I will say this. Oh, my God. The Defiant. Wow. We put an end to that. That was <laughs> that a was, bold yeah, choice. That was a bold choice. Yeah. And I respect that choice. That was a, that um, was a, a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it plays. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, also a, a bold strategy, Solber. Wow, about time somebody checked on Angel's DNA. You would have thought yeah. that that would have happened much earlier on. Uh, uh, sorry, that did not play out very well for you, Solbar. Yeah. And, I, you know, this might be a thing we come back to later in the episode, but I, I just I want to park this here um, because it's about Damar. 
And you were mentioning those two Cardassians just hanging out <laughs> next to Wayu yeah. while this is all going on. Okay, while I am a big believer in the powerful speech that changes people's minds and inspires them to do good, um, did literally every Cardassian believe in Damara's speech? I mean, you know, Cisco immediately wants verification. And and I totally believe the changelings orders to Wayun and the Breen that he is to be rounded up and eliminated along with his conspirators. But that's just Damar and his co-conspirators. You're thinking about all of the hundreds of thousands of Cardassian rank and file who are actually doing what he asked them to do. So is it really that easy that you, you get a video feed? You go, well, that's Damar. Damar is one of us. I guess we go do what he says to do and turn our weapons in the other direction. So does it work that way? I guess so. Well, I was thinking that it's because they attacked Rondak 3. It was kind of proof of concept that he is going against the Dominion. Mm-hmm. But as you said before, and I agree, these are Cardassians. So subterfuge and playing the long game... It's what they do. It's what they do. Okay, now I need to know how the destruction of the Defiant is going to show up on an insurance claim. The suspense is killing me. We'll get right back to the changing face of evil, but first of all, A big thank you to our sponsors this week, and that would be you, all of you who have joined us over at Patreon on patreon.com slash mission log. Norman, what's been happening at Patreon? Well, we've been growing, and we have this fantastic... (laughs) leaps and bounds. Exactly. We have this wonderful community. We have such tremendous participation. We have so many different fandoms that are being shared. When it comes to food first, that's our yeah, well, that, biggest that's, channel. Yeah, okay. That's Everyone me. can get behind yeah, you. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we have all different types of discussions. We have discussions about all different types of science fiction or Eagle Moss collectibles or mm-hmm. you know cons and events or cosplay or science fiction from the 1950s. Or it's, pets. Pets. And, and it, pets. Our, it's our all furries, in there. Our, our triples and more gets a lot of love. So there are so many people, so much diversity, uh, so much just to discuss and share. And sometimes you even find like nuggets of things that you don't even know exist, which exactly. is amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, Patreon has really become like the backstage pass to Mission Log and a way to hang out in this great online community. We have early access to our shows. Of course, you can get swag that is exclusive to our Patreon members, and uh, we have weekly live chat discussions with uh, everybody there to pick apart and discuss the episodes of the week. Uh, Norman, you've been doing Sunday morn Mm-hmm. which is great. So another exclusive to our friends there. Um, and yeah, the discussion boards are really alive and kicking over there. Uh, special shout out to people who have joined us very recently. So Phil, Michael, Andrew, Daniel, Robert, Mark, Valeria, Kelly, thank you all for uh, signing up very recently and joining part of that conversation at patreon.com slash mission log. Uh, so, John, uh, let's jump in right into the discussion here because we have a lot of things to talk about. It's a pretty heavy episode, another really like thick plot-driven episode, but some pretty salient points that we need to make here, um, especially about what Kai wins up to, what the Kai's up to, what the Mars up to, 
these are the changing faces of evil. Yes. I want to start off with uh, an old adage uh, that people may know. Uh, nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, yeah. Uh, that I, yeah. And, and I think you'd look at that in many ways with many of the characters in this episode. Yeah. There's this wonderful quote by Solbor, um, who says to Kai Wen right before he hands over this super evil ancient text, he who studies evil is studied by evil. Now, I was mm. thinking about what this really meant. And again, with this whole nature abhors a vacuum, there has been kind of a vacuum of power on the quote-unquote evil side of the equation when it comes to the delicate balance of good versus evil. We have the prophets on one side. But now with what Ducat has invested himself into and with studying the paw race in, say, what, the end uh, somewhere in season six and turning himself into a vessel for one uh, that mm -hmm. killed Jadzia, the paw race seem like they're now trying to create this balance between the forces of quote-unquote good, the prophets, and now the forces of quote-unquote evil, the paw race, because when you take a look at what they're doing – they're trying to manipulate Kai Wen into being their emissary with Ducat being her advocate, very much like mm -hmm. they, the prophets turned Cisco into their emissary and Kira being mm -hmm. his advocate. So, but the interesting thing is now you have Kira as Cisco's advocate versus Ducat as Kai Wen's advocate. So, do you feel that this is what's happening with this whole balance of power between the prophets and the paw wraiths? Do the paw wraiths are do they really have that kind of end game planned? Well, so wait, wait a minute. What, what though is wrong with any of the Bajorans that they can't be their own advocates? Because I mean, you, you just spelled this out in a way that I hadn't really thought of. Like obviously, Cisco is the emissary, and he is chosen by the prophets to do his thing on you know on behalf of them for the Bajoran people. And yes, that has been this source of conflict, especially with Kai Wen. Like that that is a sticking point for her to go, well, he's not even Bajoran. Okay, but now it takes a Cardassian like the paw race have to then go out of bounds and pick somebody who is also not a Bajoran. The paw race, look, they they could have learned from the mistakes of the prophets and they could have just shown up on Kai Wen's doorstep and said, Hey, uh we're we're here. You know, yeah, she did have a vision, but it has taken all this guidance from Dukat to do their bidding, which mm -hmm. is kind of strange, you know? Yeah, I, th I thought so, too, because, I mean, I know, like, in Kira's case, she's always been the one to to kind of, like, remind the the power that uh, Cisco has in his title. Not necessarily the power that he has, like, a supernatural power, but the power that he has right. to influence the Bajoran people on the station for, you know, for whatever they need, you know, whatever spiritual direction that they need from the emissary. Right. But with Dukat, it just seems that the paw rates have the power to be able to speak to the Kai directly uh, through subterfuge or, or through guile and say like, no, we are the prophets. The reason why the other prophets didn't talk to you is because they're the paw rates. So why not go with that angle? Yeah. Right. Yeah, why do you yeah. need an intermediary to be able to convince Kai Wen that no, we are the true prophets the prophets yeah. wouldn't the only true prophets talk to you why would see? they talk to them see exactly now you picked out this line as did i and i want to come back to it at the end of the show today uh he who studies evil is studied by evil because i i am trying to pick apart the ways that that 
could have meaning, the ways that that could be used in this episode. I it, it took me a moment to kind of process it, and I'm I'm not satisfied that I've come to a really good answer on it. Um, I I think your description here about it's really more about nature abhorring that vacuum. Kai Wen is going to step into whatever powers she can get. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if she's taken away from her more acceptable, more holy position as Kai and uh, doing the work of the prophet, supposedly, if that's taken away, hey, so what? There is another position of power that I can take right over here that is also serving to my needs. I, I think um, when when Solbor was saying this, he who studies evil is studied by evil. Um, it was interesting to me in kind of like the I don't know, uh, more of just like the ac- academics. Like like what what does he really mean by how? Either one of them will be affected psychologically by what they're getting into. Because realistically, that information exists as part of their library, as part of their history. Anybody could theoretically go get it. It hasn't been opened in 700 years because they're afraid of it. I'm the one who says, well, you know, words are words. They should be studied and understood. And uh, that is the only way that you can make reasonable decisions is when you have complete information, you know? So I, I, I wondered if that was a line that was, that sounded good more than it was actually something of value. But also could have meant that she was studying evil as Ducat studied her. Okay. I'll take it in the literal sense then with uh, Ducat studying her and figuring out ways to manipulate her. Uh, But at this point, she has been pretty well manipulated at every turn. You know, I think the the book is just one more prop in in all of that. I mean, my biggest problem with that whole scene is that they have a seven hundred year old text there, and no one's wearing protective gloves. That's just me. That no, that is very true. That that you know. yeah, that uh, as soon as you open that thing, it probably would have fallen apart to dust. You yeah. know, <laughs> I've been watching way too much Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, let's talk about some ancient texts for a moment here, because there was another theme that I thought of, another parallel that I thought of, and that is rapture. And uh, and I'm not just talking about a song by Blondie, uh, nor just an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, there was a very interesting scene here with Ducat's very clear-eyed explanation to Kai Wynn of what will happen when they release the Paw Race. And although that should be very scary, it should be scary to her, it should be scary to anybody who hears it, uh, But but here's the thing that is troubling to me. There are plenty of mainstream and not so mainstream belief systems in the real world here on earth in the 21st century that predict and even welcome the end times. And they're always so self-assured that when their particular God or gods show up to wipe the earth clean of the ones who aren't pure or deserving, that they will definitely be among the ones who are saved. Uh, and, And it's always couched in very destructive terms, and it's very self-serving, and it really takes the responsibility off the individuals to do good now. Um, Look, I I don't need to tell anyone here that it is sick and twisted, uh, but it's not just a TV show, folks. There was something about what Dukat was describing to Kai Wen that, well, 
in ways that Kai Wen has made my skin crawl in the past. <laughs> that moment also made my skin crawl because I could hear the sound of others who would uh, who would support philosophies like that today and say like, oh yeah, well, this is going to be great. You know, when the earth is wiped clean of all those who are non-deserving and, but we'll be here because our particular God has chosen us to stick around and that'll be a great day. Well, going back to Covenant, because now you just kind of like mm-hmm. made me remember something. Goldicott is actually kind of defaulting back to what he was trying to do on Empok Nor with his cult followers. But now he actually has the power of Kai Wen and the Book of the Coast of Mojin to do what he wanted to do when he was doing the cult uh, leadership thing the first time around. He didn't have the power then. He just mm-hmm. had his charisma. He had uh, some dedicated followers who, hey, you know what? Maybe the paw race aren't that bad. You know, at least they had a, you know, uh, an exploration of that. But now he has actually unlocked the power to be able to enforce this belief system yeah. through her, which is a really dangerous thing because they're, they're tapping into now these supernatural technological alien forces that give him and Kaiwen the ability to enforce said cult belief yeah. system. Literally waiting for destruction, waiting for this force bigger than them to wipe out everything that isn't on the same page as them. And and it's a it's a twisted philosophy to have. We're watching the bad guys on this show do this. And I'm over here waving my hand saying "Eh, there are people on Earth who believe that kind of thing, too. That's terrifying. It Mm -hmm. it kind of plays a little bit into um, something I wanted to get into next. And it's this whole like, you know. If you if you live long enough, you can watch history repeat itself. Sure, because this is the this is the point in history in Deep Space Nine where history is actually starting to repeat itself when it comes to the Cardassians being occupied by the Dominion as mm-hmm. the Cardassians once occupied Bajor. Damar has been on the giving side of that when he was part of the occupying force or forces under Goldicott to occupy Bajor. But now he said, you know, he realizes that, wow, the Dominion has completely infiltrated Cardassia, subjugated its people, manipulated its leadership without a violent shot. How did they do that? And now he's like, is this what it means to be occupied? to have zero choice in the matter, to have zero representation in the matter, to have zero influence, even in your own government. This is what we did. Now, now he knows. He knows. And I think that that's super informative to where I think he's going to be. Maybe this type of Shakar type resistance cell leader, where he's like, Mm. I know how strong the Bajoran resistance was during the occupation. Maybe there's something I can learn here from somebody who was one of the best resistance fighters ever. I can't, I mean, I'm projecting, sure, but sure. I can't help but ha- see Damar reaching out and saying, I need to, I need to find the best out there who know how to fight, how to resist. Cause that's what he said at the end. He's like, resist. Right. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's a dynamic that I've never seen kind of like before in Star Trek where you see the bad guys understand why they're bad guys 
Okay, but I'm going to come back to that as well at the end, because that, that also leaves me with a question. But before we get there, before we get to our next segment, I, I do want to throw out uh, another interesting uh, kind of aspect to how the Cardassians and the Dominion have behaved in all of this, because I am by no means an expert on military tactics or history of warfare, any of that. But what struck me as being so interesting, the portrayal of Weyun and the Dominion's motivations and strategy was that in this episode, and this isn't the first one, but in this one, we we hit on it a couple of times, that they are definitely using fear and intimidation as part of the plan. You know, you, we in the discussion about what they did on Earth and why the Breen attacked Earth, and then later on, we uh, bookend that with the escape pods leaving the Defiant, which is the, that strongest, you know, uh, strong little ship. Plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Weyun gets it. He's like, oh, no, no, let them be scared. Let them go back and tell others how scared they were. Yes, from a production point of view, we have to save our characters. But also this plays into the idea that fear and intimidation is part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Weyun didn't mind. He didn't even think twice about it, losing ships on the attack on Earth. He just saw it as a victory by scaring the Federation, right? you know? And so, like I said, the female changeling reiterates that with letting the escape pods go. Now, I I know, obviously, there is such thing as psychological warfare as an element to any type of campaign, but there is also a professionalism and the, you know, quote, rules that most wars are carried out by. And we, you can point to examples in history that either are or aren't. But I, I kept wondering, the more we explore this on the Dominion side, is, is what we're seeing, is it is it sadism? Is it a legit strategy? Is it both? Or is it actually a sign of their weakness? That it, it's not just enough to be victorious strategically, you know, from a military or political point of view, but also to be feared. And this is an interesting counterpoint to Descartes, who genuinely, in his twisted way, wants the love of the people that he conquers. And I had to wonder, what what is it about this element of fear that the Dominion and Weyun seems to be getting off on a little bit, that they have to exercise that as part of their military campaign as well? That's a really good question. I, I think it has to do with, um, you know, if we go back to, say, and apply Sun Tzu's The Art of War, and I, I won't be able to quote this specifically, so please out there, uh, forgive me, but there's this whole idea of being able to set up the strategy of a battle to win the battle before the battle is actually fought. You know, mm. so in in that way, if there's a way that you can cripple the momentum of the enemy forces by psychological means. That means that you don't, it's like what Damar said. He said that the Dominion was able to infiltrate us without firing a shot and occupy us without actually being violent ever. But in this case, the, the fear is supposed to basically prevent, uh, you know, the Starfleet and, you know, humankind from ever attempting to try and, you know, uh, 
create a you know a force against the dominion but mm-hmm. that's i guess that's playing into the whole you don't know humankind really well do you mm. like when you throw down the gauntlet we pick the gauntlet up and throw it right back at you that's kind of like the stick of being human and yeah. i know that this is the coalition of the federation of planets but i think in the analogy of this you kick the wrong hornet's nest man you know you you kick the one that's going to be like you know what we don't like being kicked we're going to kick back and you hit us in our home turf yeah. You know, you, there's something about that that, again, it just kind of resonates with uh, going all the way back to Pearl Harbor. Well, hey, right? look look at that same parallel with what Damara is feeling, what, what he expresses about the Cardassians in their own turf. And mm-hmm. now we're occupied. And that makes us stronger because we're fighting for something that we believe in, which is our home. Poor Sauber. He probably wishes he'd been on vacation this week. Maybe staying with those people who shout at clouds. They seem nice. Once again, John, we are at the end of another very heavy, very strong plot-driven episode. And as we do our due diligence, we are here to see if the episode holds up and withstands the test of time and try and find the morals and meanings and messages after our very many viewings to figure out what's going on. So uh, let's start with you. Let's see if this episode held up for you and does it withstand the test of time? Yeah, you know, again, at the fear of being too repetitive and saying the same thing about weighing out the episode versus weighing out the episode as part of uh, a longer plot, um, we get to kind of judge it on both merits. And I think that this one does two things very well, which is that, yes, it works very well on its own because we get to enjoy the performances and just as far as um, the plot mechanics as far as the pacing and timing it all works very well so just as a piece of writing it's some great dialogue scenes you get some great character moments and it is also a great culmination of plot points that we've established in previous episodes so there is more payoff for kai win's self-delusion which is twisted and menacing and bizarre to watch there's ducat being ducat uh there is the loss of the defiant which is you know puts a sad bow on uh, an ongoing character of ds9 so the, these were bold but important choices to make in this story and it lends this kind of finality and believable finality to things that are happening in the lead up to the very last episode um and you know ultimately we have damar enacting his heroics uh, you know taking action instead of just now he's been fighting with this idea he's been demoralized by the people around him what will he actually do well here he does it and it's it's just great to watch um we're not out of the woods yet mm-hmm. but again this is a nice cap on this sort of like subset of episodes in this longer arc so look, if you're sold on the characters and by extension the actors inhabiting them, this episode holds up very nicely. It of of course, it works best in context because we're talking about the bigger context of this you know, uh, far-reaching story that we've arrived at, but 
it works very well. How about you, Norm? I mean, I thought this was a great episode. It's it's packed with so many great performances. It is a little fast paced because the mm. exposition has to be you know pushed through at a very specific cadence. But I thought the narratives were balanced well. I thought the cutting back and forth was balanced well. You can just feel that they're pushing and pushing and pushing this story further and further into this serialized pace where Mm -hmm. every ending you're like, no, I want to see more. Please continue. That's how serialization actually does work and is working very well in these specific uh, end game, quote unquote, end game episodes. And I'm sure that say like in 1998, when these episodes stopped and it wasn't necessarily like a to be continued dot, 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 they just stopped. And you knew that was, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to get the continuation the following week. I'm sure that, you know, the fans out there were just raving about getting to next week's episode. The only thing I think for me that, that they can kind of either dial back or cut out (laughs) is the whole Alamo (laughs) thing. Because, but then again, I mean, it just really? kind of like, it gets a little long. It gets a little long sometimes, you know? It, it, it gets a little long, but I, 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 I still wondered about those moments because, like, maybe it's just a problem with the script that they're almost having too much fun with it. But I, mm-hmm. I like the parallel of, you know, the unwinnable battle. But what if you can look at it from other sides? What if you can actually study it and get better at it and and what are the factors that we haven't accounted for like i'll go back to episodes that were maybe not so great like statistical probabilities where you have uh the the four genetically altered who say you know like look we've run every calculation we we've thought everything through and the federation's going to lose you know the dominion will will be victorious but maybe they hadn't thought of everything Mm-hmm. And I think about Miles and Dr. Bashir doing that with that model going, no matter how we slice this, they will keep losing. But but what if there's that one factor we didn't account for? Like, I think there's some value to that, but maybe for you, they're, they're making light of it too much? I think, there's, I think there's value in that if they used that particular scenario as a way to study warfare as opposed to using it recreationally. Now, it may come mm. organically for them to be like, oh, this feels like what happened to, you know, uh, to the Alamo, to the, to, you know, to the heroes at the Alamo. They were surrounded by an overwhelming force. But if they did this differently, they would have won. If that's the case, then why not study the, the, the Battle of the 300 at the Battle of Thermopylae, right? That was mm-hmm. exactly the same mm-hmm. scenario, but they're not using that particular battle as a means of studying an unwinnable you know, scenario. There are, you know, countless wars where you have, uh, let's take the battle of, um, uh, was it Henry V? Uh, it was the, it was the, uh, battle of, uh, is it Hastings? Oh, it, sure. Henry the fourth at, uh, at Agincourt. Agincourt, right? Yeah. They weren't supposed Henry to win either. Yeah. You know, fifth, so fifth, 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 fifth. They yeah. weren't supposed to win yeah. either. Sorry. They were, they were yeah. waiting for the French to cut them down, but yeah, you know, a technology helped win that war. That's something they could have studied, right? Yeah. And they yeah. could have tra- and, and then Miles could have extrapolated that. It's like, oh, the technology, the range, the distance, the timing, the the environment, the you know, the the rainfall, the fields, all those things. But they're just having a recreationally fun time playing war games with the Alamo. And I was like, okay, even Quark said, like, don't you guys have a war to fight? Now, I understand that they go back and say, you know, yeah, we're just kind of like goofing off. We're we're blowing off steam and stuff like that. But 
I hope this is my hope. I which hope, is also valid. No, too. Which absolutely. is also valid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I hope that we're going to see this payoff, so that mm-hmm. we can come back to this recording, or listeners can and write in and say, "I told you so, Norm." I'm like, please do, because <laughs> yeah, that's right. what I want to have happen. I want to see this payoff somewhere. So, but I have to say, the entire thing, the entire episode, whatever mistakes mm-hmm. I think it has in this episode, are washed clean. All sins are forgiven because of that one scene that that Casey Biggs as Damar had with John Vickery as Skull mm. Rasat, where he just yeah. puts his hand on Rasat's, Damar puts his hand on Rasat's arm and keeps him from drinking the canar. Basically in an action, Damar said, mm-hmm. I need all of us to sober up and sacrifice everything until we've won. Yeah. In one yeah. very nuanced action. Loved it. I loved that. But, um, Obviously, I think we think the, the episode has at least held up for us. So let's get into the morals and meanings and messages, because I think that we have some things to say. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, we run into this problem where it's a lot of heavily plot-driven and, and character-driven stuff. So there's not always the beat-you-on-the-head-you-see-Timmy moment. Um, I. I, I really wanted to make more of this old Bajoran saying, he who studies evil is studied by evil. I look forward to having a conversation um, in our Discord and, and elsewhere about that line because they gave it weight, but I'm not really sure if the weight was necessarily there or earned. What fascinates me is that we have a study of two bad guys, quote, bad guys, finger quotes around that, with Kai Wen and Damar. But the difference is that one is being led by self-interest and ambition down a very bad road, while the other is being led by principle, as I mentioned on the last episode of Mission Log. And Kai Wen is surrounded at every opportunity with her position of power and the support of people who in general, I mean, we're not talking about Dakota at this moment, uh, but people who, you know, we assume are looking out for the Bajoran people. She's gotten it wrong at every turn because she's so blinded by her own ambition. Damar is surrounded by people who fetishize power and are determined to conquer every last living thing that can be bent to their will. But, but look at the divergent paths of these two. Kai Wen can't see past her own needs and Damar is absolutely focused on the big picture this is this this character study in two people who regardless of circumstance and opportunity have diverged on these paths there's there's something to be said for Damar's change now here's where I'm going to challenge you Norman mm-hmm. the real question about how all of this plays out is Damar's change is it really more convenience at a certain point and a, a bit of uh, self-preservation, self also extending to his people? So what I'm asking is, is the enemy of my enemy my friend? You know, Damar is representative of th- this incredible warrior species who seemingly moments ago where occupiers of Bejor have this incredible sadistic streak, have, have basically been the, you know, fascistic Nazis of this section of the galaxy. But here we've got the guy who's doing the right thing. 
But is he doing the right thing in a way that we, me, we the Federation, can actually get behind? Hmm. You know, is he doing this only because he has been beaten down so much by this new occupying force, the Dominion, that he only wants to get out from under that? Does Cardassia go back to its very bad ways, you know, pre-Dominion ways, once that's gone? So I want to pull for Damar. And I want to pull for him making the right decisions for the right reasons and sticking with those right decisions for the right reasons. I feel like Kai Wen is a lost cause. I feel like Kai Wen, Kai Wen was a lost cause even when we all thought that she was on the right side, just behaving very badly because she can't help it. Now she is somebody who behaves very badly and is being led astray by the, quote, wrong side here. As much as I love Damar, I'm trying to decide where does this actually go? Is this somebody who has actually seen the light, for lack of a better phrase, and will carry on even if he's victorious? I guess it really depends now on whether or not we believe uh, the, the circumstances that we've seen so far that have led Damar to this point. Because it's not like it hasn't been earned. We've seen time and again where he has been blown off by Wei Yun or Wei Yun has just cavalierly uh, scoffed at the numbers of Cardassians that were lost or they should have gotten support from Dominion forces to hold this particular part of the system and just kind of uh, just kind of push Damar off to the side, his wants and needs. And hey, like, you know, Mars like, look, like I, w- I was in it to win it with, with all of you. But if you're not going to, if you're not going to at least hear my my side of the equation, then what am I doing here? Like, what's what's the purpose of us being part of the Dominion? An actual um, a quote from The Dark Knight, it's kind of like rose to the top when I was watching this episode. It's the uh, quote from Harvey Dent. They were all having dinner um, <laughs> with Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne's girlfriend, or I can't remember the scene exactly, but I do remember the quote. Mm. The quote is, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I think that is an absolutely fabulous quote, and I think that really applies to Damar here. So the big question is, John, um, you know, to answer your question with a question, when is enough enough? How far does one yeah. have to be pushed in order to take action? How many innocent lives must be sacrificed to realize that the choices made for the choiceless are the wrong ones? So these kind of questions, like in this episode, that are raised in this episode, are, in my opinion, at the very heart of great Star Trek storytelling. Who decides what, for whom, and why? Who has the authority? And how did they achieve that power? Like Damar. Hmm. Damar achieved the power that he has right now solely because he was the only person standing in the room at the time after Dakot. The Dominion yeah. knew that they could manipulate him. So they're like, hey, you know, throw him some scraps from Longshank's table, as they said in Braveheart, and keep the nobles in line. Right? Right. But what happens when that power is abused or usurped or circumvented, as Wei Yun has done to Damar over the course of the last couple of seasons? And eventually, who suffers from those choices and those mistakes, those acts of selfishness and self-preservation? Damar is that character that embodies all of these questions. 
And he's the example of how basic and decent morality can be so easily corrupted from the inside out. Mm. Damar was actually, we've made the mention of this before. He's a pretty common stand-up soldier. Mm -hmm. And he has questioned Dukat from time to time, only to have Dukat use that same influence and power to change Damar's mind, to have him toe the party line. So you have power, you have wealth, you have women, you have luxury. All of these became fleeting to Damar when he began to understand not only the depth of his decisions or lack thereof, when the reports of millions and millions of her Cardassian lives, they weren't just lost, but they became the cannon fodder for Wayun and the founders in the Dominion who don't even care about those lives, replacing one stock of cannon fodder with now this new stock of cannon fodder with the brain. So yeah. he has to ask himself, how much is enough? When does it all end? Well, in my opinion, it ends with what Kirk said at the end of Mirror, Mirror. In every revolution, there's one man with a vision. And that man is Damar. Man, I, I, I love how that moment keeps coming back in Mission Log discussions, new and old. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log... When it rains. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Hey, Wayun. Bro, you got demarred so hard. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.